In the, in the name of a resurrecting king, fear gives way to peace. Fear gives way to peace. Fear gives way to peace. I want to pray for us in this moment. Father God, I thank you that the words that we have sung are true. That you are not a legend or a fairy tale, but the living Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, walked this earth to know our struggles and our pain, died a death he did not deserve to win a life that we don't deserve. And Lord, I pray where there is fear that you would call it out in the strong name of Jesus. You would identify it. You would bring it out into the light. And you would suffocate it with hope. Lord, where there is deceit, where we are tempted to live in our own kind of shadows of, of self, selfishness, our kind of commitment to secret pleasure, Lord, I pray that you would, you would yank us mercifully out into the light, not so that we can be shamed, but so that we can be set free. And God, I pray that where there is insecurity and anxiety manifested in all of its many forms, I pray that you would drown it in the perfect love of Jesus in your name and by your spirit in this moment so that we might be positioned to receive the gift that you want to give. So Lord, if there is anything that we can see or that we can't that would prohibit us from experiencing the manifest power and mercy of God, bind it now in the name of Jesus. And loose your love and power in ways that are undeniable and real. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Today we're continuing our series called The Radical Minimum, calling out four practices, four habits that we believe should be true of any person who is a follower of Jesus Christ or who desires to be a follower of Jesus Christ. In the first week, we talked about prayer. We used that Wi-Fi signal. We talked about making sure that that signal is strong. And last week, our lead pastor, Craig Reese, talked about the headphones, being able to listen to God as he speaks to us in Scripture. And not only that we're reading the verses of Scripture, but we're allowing the truth of Scripture to read us, to reveal things about our hearts and minds that we would not know without the insight and the kindness of God. And today we're talking about the practice of community. We got those boxing gloves up there. Why? Because we believe that authentic biblical community is lived with people that we are fighting for and fighting with. Not fighting against, but fighting for and fighting with. Now, I'm not a scientist, but I've heard a rumor that there are these two fields in physics called applied physics and theoretical physics. Theoretical physics is stuff that people think about abstractly. Applied physics is stuff that people actually can, can do. And I believe that when we talk about community, there is a difference between theoretical community and applied community. And I came across a story this last fall that revealed this to be true. You may have heard this. This is an article that appeared in the New York Times. It is entitled, Student Trapped in Indiana Cave for 58 Hours Licked Water Off the Walls. This appeared September 24, 2017. Lucas Kavar screamed for hours, hoping to get someone's attention. Bats, salamanders, crayfish, and beetles were his only company. Stranded in a cave without food or water, he was unsure that he would ever see his family again. 
He wrote notes to loved ones on his phone, which did not have a signal. He licked moisture off of the cave walls and became so hungry he thought about eating crickets. What was supposed to be a fun adventure turned into a hellish 58 hours for Mr. Kavar, a 19-year-old Indiana University student who was left behind during an expedition on September 17th to Sullivan Cave near Bloomington, Indiana. When Mr. Kavar this year joined the university's caving club, which organized the trip, he had never been spelunking before. He might not ever go again. During the outing, he and 11 others, including a university staff member, divided into two groups and explored for hours. Each person was assigned a buddy as a precaution. Sullivan Cave is the fourth longest in the state with 9.6 miles of mapped passage, according to the cave's owner. Mr. Kavar became separated from the group at a long passage with a low ceiling called the Backbreaker. I thought, I'm not really enjoying this Backbreaker part, Mr. Kavar said, which first reported on the episode, the Indiana Daily Student. He left the group and tried to meet with the other group, but got lost. He made his way back to the gate at the cave's entrance, but it was locked from the outside. It was then he realized he was trapped without food and without water. The club's leaders, however, were unaware of his whereabouts. Mr. Gavar's parents, who are both associate professors of linguistics at Indiana University, called the school on Tuesday and reported their son missing. Help arrived late Tuesday night. Mr. Gavar was asleep, curled up at the bottom of an entrance of the cave when the bright lights of the rescuers roused him. It took me a while to recognize and realize where I was, he said in an email, but as soon as it clicked in my brain, I scrambled up the remainder of the cave as fast as I could and climbed out. The rest was a blur. He spoke to his assigned buddy afterwards. I bet he did. According to him, there was a buddy check at the mouth of the cave while the two groups were still separated. His buddy told the leaders that he didn't see Mr. Gavar and he assumed he was with the other group. The carpooling cars got reshuffled since some people had to leave early, so no one noticed I was gone. On an internal Indiana University website, the club posted a statement that the student newspaper published. We have a series of rigorous protocols in place that are supposed to prevent situations like this, but they are only effective if followed, you think? We had a failure in our leadership to closely follow all of these safety procedures. Let's be clear, community only counts when it is practiced. Theoretical community leaves 19-year-old freshmen locked in caves. So many of us say, I, I, I agree with community, I like community, I affirm community. And then we ask this question, are you following the biblically prescribed protocols of community? Just because you have it in your mind or just because you would sign off on, on paper doesn't mean that it's being lived out in a real and a true form in your life. So let's start with this. Let's talk about what community is not. Community is not proximity. Just because you don't live in a hermitage on an abandoned like tropical island doesn't mean that you're living in community. Just because you have geographic closeness to people doesn't mean you're connecting with them at a soul level. Community is not proximity. Community is not familiarity. Familiarity is when you walk through the lobby of this church, and you're like, oh, I recognize that person and that person and that person. It doesn't mean that you know anything about them or that they know anything about you. Community is not unconscious recognition of another. And finally, community is not nicety. Nicety is polite social behavior. Community runs deeper. Community has to be intentional. When we first moved to this area, we realized that part of the challenge of growing up in West Michigan is also a blessing 
And that's that this is an area with deep family roots. When we first moved to our subdivision in Zealand, we met neighbors, we said, where are you from? They said, Chicago. We said, why'd you move here? And they said, oh, to be with family. And then we met another set of neighbors, where are you from? We're from Minneapolis. Why'd you move back to Zealand? Oh, so that we could be with family. And so the beauty is there are all these family roots that exist. The challenge is that many of us, where our relational networks are already tapped out. We already know a lot of people. And we already have life rhythms that allow us to connect regularly with a lot of people. So our challenge isn't, who are we going to do life with? The question that we have to answer is, how are we going to do life with the people who are already in our lives? And there's a brilliant passage in Scripture, uh, one that some of you may have heard before. And if you're in our 28-day challenge, you remember reading this on day two. It's found in Acts chapter two. It talks about the early followers of Jesus and their practice of community. It said, they devoted themselves, they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled at awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions and they gave to anyone as they had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, so they met publicly, they met privately. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Make no mistake, the early church did not stumble across community. They created it. And the question that we need to ask is, are we continually committed to the practice of community? Are we creating time and space in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, in our calendars for community to occur. I love this about the early church. It says that they committed themselves to teaching and to fellowship. They're living out truth in context and they're reclaiming regular rhythms. They're like, well, we're all gonna eat anyway. Let's eat together. And when we eat together, let's remind ourselves that we wanna be people who live our lives with glad and sincere hearts. The letter of Hebrews tells us what community should look like. These are verses that we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 22 to 25. Let us draw near to God with sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as the habit of some are doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. I believe that community gives us five gifts. Community allows us to foster worship. Community fosters worship. Look at the first verse in that passage. It says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Worship is the act of a group of people who are taking a step towards the presence and the reality of God. Sometimes that will include singing. Sometimes that will include service. Sometimes that will include silent prayer. It takes different forms, but the intent of worship is to create an environment where a pocket of people take a step towards a God who loves them, who knows them, and who calls them by name. I remember my youth pastor told me when I was younger, he goes, Steve, never forget you are who you run with. And what I've learned is that worship is contagious. There is a study that is not at all rocket science that I heard on the radio this week, and they said, amazingly, people who want to lose weight manage to do so when they hang out with other people who have healthy eating habits. 
Surprise, surprise. Like if you've ever been out with friends, you're like, I'm gonna eat healthy. And you're the last person to order and everybody else got a triple bacon cheeseburger. And you're like, well, I'm not gonna get a salad now. And conversely, when you're, when you're with a group of like other people and nine of them get the quinoa salad, you're not gonna get the triple bacon cheeseburger at that point. Why? Because a rising tide lifts all boats. When you hang out with a group of people over time, you will begin to value what they value. You will worship what they worship. And if you spend time with people who worship material things, you will drift in that direction. If you spend time with people who worship a particular form of pleasure, you will lean that way too. But if you spend time with people who want to pursue God with a pure heart, you will want what they want in time. The people that you hang out with are telling you what to worship. Who are you hanging with and what are you worshiping? If you've been through this scripture study with us, Radical Minimum, you know that on Friday we read Acts chapter 13. It says, while they, early followers of Jesus, were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke to them. And I believe that when we worship, the goal is not just for us to sing the songs that are on the set list. The goal is for us to position ourselves before God that says, God, if you have a word for this community, we want to hear it. Which is why I want to encourage you to join us this Friday night, the second uh, Nate and our worship team are leading a worship open house. You don't have to be there for the whole time, but you can just show up at 7. You can stay all the way until 9.30. You can drop in for 15 minutes. You can come in for an hour. But what are we doing? We're trying to create that space where we say, as a community, we want whatever it is that God wants for us. And we believe that through putting our attention towards God collectively, we create a space for God to speak in ways that he wouldn't speak under other circumstances. So worship does what? Worship fosters Sorry, community fosters worship. And then community also, it frames identity. Community frames identity. The verse there says, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. When we spend time in a group, that group will develop its own identity. And the book of Hebrews says this, your identity is this, you are the redeemed people of God. Your hearts are cleansed of guilt and your bodies belong to God. And that pure water reference, that is a reference to baptism. And we here at Central Wesleyan, we believe that part of following Jesus is a public declaration of your faith. And if you've never been publicly baptized, we want to encourage you to do so. We're going to have baptisms on this stage on February 11th. And there's more information about that online. You can go to our website, uh, centralwesleyan.org forward slash baptism. And baptism is a chance for you to say, I am identifying with the community of people who have been redeemed by the grace of God. If you haven't done so, we'd love for you to do it. We'd love for you to do it here. We'd love for you to do it with us. Baptism says, I'm not my past. I'm not my failures. I'm not my own agenda. I am dead to who I used to be, but now I'm alive in Christ. It's worth celebrating. So community fosters worship. It frames identity. Community forges faithfulness. Community is that furnace through which the trials of life are endured with a group of people who hold one another up when our knees start to buckle. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Why? Because he who promises faithful. Community helps us hang on when we feel like letting go. And if you have experienced a loss or a setback or a disappointment in your life and you've ever tried to face that alone, you know how easy it is to submit to the stranglehold of despair. 
But when we have people who walk disappointment and grief and loss and rejection with us, they hold us up when we're tired. Just this last weekend, I had an opportunity to sit down with a couple who's planning a fall wedding. And I talked to them about how I like to do ceremonies. And I said, one of my practices, I would love for you to list out the values that you want to define your marriage and define your future. And then when I stand up and give your ceremony, basically all I'm going to do is I'm going to read back to you who you say you want to be. But I'm going to challenge everybody who's gathered in that wedding ceremony to be able to say, in this moment, you are graduating. I am deputizing you from mere wedding spectators to active participants in making sure that this couple's union succeeds. Now, I don't know about you, but that raises the stakes a little bit. Half the time when I'm at a wedding ceremony, I, I, I go a little bit blank, and I'm like, did I order the chicken or the steak? When, when what I should be thinking of is, how is God prompting me to rally around this couple and make sure that they have all of the encouragement, all the support, all the resources, all the wisdom to make it, to run this gauntlet called marriage? We can only experience long-term faithfulness whether it's in a marriage or whether it's to excellence in a business or character in our private lives, when we have other people helping us get there. Community fosters worship. Community frames identity. Community forges faithfulness. And then community creates movement. Community fights against apathy. I love this line. It says, let us consider how we might spur one another on towards love and good deeds. What's a spur? Spurs a sharp metal object that drives a large, unwilling animal in a direction that it would not choose to go. How many of you enjoy being spurred? Being spurred is the worst. Like, I can imagine if you're an animal, you're like, get that thing off of me already. But the scriptures say, if we're going to be the kind of people that God wants us to be, we have a privilege and the obligation of spurring one another on. Somebody once said, a coach is a man who makes somebody do what they don't want to do so they could be the person they always dreamed they could become. I love it. It says, let's spur one another on towards love and good deeds. I don't know about you. I grew up in a church that valued accountability. But when they talked about accountability, basically what it means was, hey, let's get a group of, a group of dudes together in a room and we'll talk about all the areas in our life that we fail and then we'll come back next week to see if anybody failed again. That's depressing. The goal of accountability is not to get to zero. Like the goal of accountability isn't to say like, oh, you're in the red, let's get you to break even and then everybody will be happy. Nobody wants a break even life. Spiritually, the goal of spurring one another on towards love and good deeds is not behavior management. It's not sin eradication. It is getting to a point where we are generating good every day in every way in every place that we go. It's creating something beautiful with our lives, not saying, I managed to sit on my hands and not touch anything dirty this week. That is not the blessed life. That's not the victorious life. That's the manageable life, but it's not the life to which Jesus calls us. Let's spur one another on towards love and good deeds. When I was in college, I had the privilege of doing a ministry internship at a church in Tucson, Arizona. If you want to go to Tucson, don't go there in July. And I remember I had a group of students and I, I was trying to create traction with them. I was the student ministry leader for a couple months and I said, Say, tell me what you guys are up to. Tell me how I can be more involved in your lives. And the, two of the students said, well, uh, we'd love for you to come and work out with us. I, they got, we got an event that we're preparing for. I'm like, well, what's the competition? They're like, we're on the rodeo team. We're growing up in Chicago, suburban Chicago. We did not have a rodeo team. This is new territory for me. 
And so I show up at their house early in the morning because if you wait for too late in the day, it's too hot for the riders, it's too hot for the horses. And the event that we were going to work on is they said, we, we want you to help us train for two-man roping. Now, if you're not a rodeo aficionado and you don't know what two-man roping was, as I did not, let me break it down for you. There is a corral. And at the edge of that corral, there is a steel pen. And that pen is a steer. And there is a gate at the front of that pen. It was my job at the prescribed moment to hit the pin on the top of that gate that would spring those doors open and the steer would go bolting out into the corral. The goal of this event is to see if the two riders can bring down that steer as quickly as possible. It's a timed event. And there's two riders. There is what is called a header and what's called a healer. The header's job is to get their lasso going and get their, get their line around the steer's neck and secure its head. The healer's job, and this requires amazing precision, is to wait for that precise moment where the steer's hind legs come up, they slide their line underneath its legs, and they pull up and back at the same time. If you've ever tried to run when somebody's got a leash on you and your feet are tied together, it doesn't work so good. So the goal is to see how quickly you can get that steer on its side, on its ground. And here's what I found most of us are trying to do in our spiritual lives. When we live in isolation, when we push back against community, we try to do a two-man event all by ourselves, And we sling our line and we're like, I'm the header, I got this. And we'll line that lasso around whatever hurt or habit or hang up or sin pattern or temptation. We're like, I've got it, I've got it. When in reality, we don't got it. And all we're doing is allowing it to take us for a ride around the corral. God has provided other people in your life as a gift to ride next to you, to be your healer and say, you've been letting this one character defect own you for far too long. Let me come alongside you and help get my line around that thing's legs and bring it down. Let me, let me be your wingman. Let me push you to love and good deeds, not fear and complacency. When we ride together, we get better. We're able to speak the truth into, truths into our lives that we have a hard time hearing on our own, but we de desperately need to hear. There's an 11-year-old girl who happens to live in my house, and at school this last week, she overheard an eighth-grade boy uh, using some language that she would consider less than preferable. And so she turned around and said, hey, we don't use those kind of words around here, like, like she owns the place, right? And the eighth grade boy turns around and goes, who said that? And without flinching, she just goes, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> now, I, 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 don't know, I don't know how you respond to that retort. <laughs> what do we need? We need people in our lives who remind us what the Holy Spirit is telling us at any given moment. And when God speaks to people, he speaks to them, especially when we read the book of Acts. When does he speak to them? He speaks to them alone, but he also speaks to them together. Some of us are living subpar lives because we keep trying to muscle through it alone. When God says, I have given you people, I have provided everything you need for life and godliness, and part of that success kit are other breathing sons and daughters of the Most High God who have what you need to get to where I've, I've asked you to be. Community, it fosters worship, it frames identity, it forges faithfulness, it fights against apathy. And if you're not living in community now, if you don't already have a group of people that you're doing life with and you're going deep with, please consider joining up for a C6 group. Uh, C6 groups are groups that meet just for six weeks over the course of an upcoming series that we're doing called Run Church Run. 
They meet uh, for about 90 minutes and there's about 12, 12 people in a group. So if you've never been a part of a group, would encourage you to go online. You can sign up for one right now. You can sign up in the lobby after the service. And if you've been a part of the, them before, you know that it's a, it's a great way just to start to get some relational traction in a big church, to meet some people and take that next step. There's one more gift that community provides. Community allows us to fight for one another, to fight for one another. Scripture says, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Community helps us help each other win. Every once in a while, I'll run into somebody who in the, who's in the early stages of their recovery and they'll say, hey, will you pray for me? I've decided that I want to get sober. And one of my very first questions is, are you going to meetings? Are you going to AA? Are you going to something like um, celebrate recovery. If you're younger, have you considered something like the landing? And about half the time, I'll have people say, you know what, I've tried that before. That didn't really work out for me. Like the meetings thing didn't really click. So I'm just, I'm going to willpower it. I'm going to white knuckle it. I'm going to swing through this all by myself. And I try to be as gracious as I know how to be, but in, invariably what I'll end up saying is, let me know how that works out for you. We'll, we'll be here waiting if you ever get stuck. And two months, six months, eight months, a year later, I'll run into that person. They'll come forward for prayer and I'll say, how is it going? And they said, not well. I tried to do it by myself and I, f I, found, I found a new bottom. I think, I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready now. There's been some debate about what the most three difficult words in the English language to utter might be. Some people might say the hardest words are, I love you. Some people say the hardest words are, I am sorry. I've got a different answer. In my life, it's always proven that the most difficult three words to utter are, I need help. I need help. But when we say, I need help, and we start committing to meeting together with the right people in the right ways in the right places, we open the door for them to serve us the way that they want to. When we meet with people on purpose, when we meet with them intentionally, we create space for us to have the rough edges of our lives sanded off. We invite other people to help us identify our blind spots and encourage us to push through them. Now, some people would say that the goal of community is to get everybody on the same page. That's right. But the goal of community is not to make everybody look the same. Community has to allow for diversity. One of my friends in the Middle East always says this. He goes, unity is not uniformity. Community, the goal of community is not to get everybody to look the same. The goal of community is for everybody to bring their unique self to the table, but to be unified in spirit and in heart. And when we have difference among us, invariably that difference will lead to conflict. But the goal then is to have the kind of community where we contend for the contenders. We contend for the contenders. And this is a line that I borrow from the book of Philippians. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Philippi. He says this, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way. Dear friends, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, going along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord 
always. I say it again, rejoice. So here's what we don't know. We don't know who Euodia and Syntyche are. We don't know what the nature of their conflict is, but we do know this. Paul who loves them, Paul who has done life with them, Paul who considers them his equals and his co-laborers knows that there is a rift in their relationship. Now, know this. Paul did not send like a private text to these two women. He didn't like message the both of them on Facebook and say, hey, I, I know you all have this beef. I want to pray for you. Let's figure it out. What, who does Paul invite to be a part of reconciling Euodia and Syntyche? He invites who? The entire church. He goes, hey, Clement. Hey, coworkers. Hey, family. We've got a rift here. And if it's broken here, then the, then the unity of the entire body is jeopardized. So again, we're not trying to shame them, but let's roll up our sleeves. Let's build a bridge. Let's, let's bridge this chasm. Let's heal this wound so that we can go back to the work of God in our town. Part of the challenge of being in a town with so many churches is that people who get into a fight in church A, all they have to do is drive around the corner and they're in church B. But one of my friends once said, he goes, don't leave a relationship because you've got problems because those problems will follow you wherever you go and every other future relationship is in jeopardy because you never did the work you needed to get done. So how many of us know people, I know none of them are in this room, but how many of us know people who have hopped from place to place to place to place because they've had relational conflict and have never been able to grow through it because there were escape routes everywhere you went? It's a challenge for us in a big church. You, 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 could run, you could run into some relational turmoil with people who used to sit in this section and all you have to do is go sit up in the galleria and, you know, and pick a different service you don't run into that person anymore. Well, that, that might be convenient, but that is not community. And the Apostle Paul said, a threat to unity somewhere is a violation of unity everywhere. Let's wrestle this down so we can be the kind of people that God is calling us to be. Reconciliation isn't just something that happens in the broken party. Reconciliation requires the entire network of people who are in proximity of that hurt or rift or wound to come alongside them and say, hey, what do we need to do together as a community to experience growth and breakthrough and healing here? And there are some people here at Central who have a deep burn to see marriages that are in crisis. Unions that are on the brink of dissolution brought back to hope, brought back to healing. And if, you are, if you're on the edge of desperation in your own marriage, or you know of one that is, please prayerfully consider uh, checking out Restoring the Gift. And it's going to start on February the 12th. You can learn more about it at centralwesleyan.org forward slash RTG. So let's ask these questions. When you think about whether or not you are consciously committed to community, how would you answer these questions? Who are the people that you're doing community with? Who are the people? Like, do you know, do you know the names? Do you have your circle defined? And let, let me ask you this question. When? When are you getting together? Somebody once said, a calendar doesn't tell you what you need to do. Your calendar tells you who you want to be. And I know sometimes in my own life, my thought is, I have friends. I'll run into them when I run into them. And when I run into them, we'll be good friends. <laughs> Instead of saying, no, we're, we're committing to a rhythm. And at Central, I want, our, I want our bare minimum, I want our radical minimum to be that once a month, once a month, 
You would commit to breaking bread, having a shared meal with an intentional group of purpose, uh, people for the purpose of hearing God speak to you. And that's the last question is the what. What do we want to do when we come together? And if you only ask two questions when you come together as a group, you'll be doing better than I would claim 90% of the church in America. And that's this. What, what's God saying to you these days? So, if, like, Rick, if you and I were sitting down, I'd say, Rick, what's been, the la- what's been the latest download from God? And you would say, I think God is leading me to do this, either in my business or in my own personal well-being or in my marriage. Then I would say, great, what do you need from me to help you obey that word from God? A lot of us, we, we overthink it. We add unnecessary layers of complexity to our walk with God. And the reality is that we use the word of God to read us and we use the community of God to discern the word of God. And we ask this question, what's God saying? And the next question is, what are you going to do about it? And if the only two questions that we ever asked each other were those questions, we would be light years ahead of, tragically, over the majority of churches in the United States. Because for most people, it's enough to be in proximity and to be nice and to be familiar. And we want to say, no, that's not going to cut it for us. We want more. So we're going to close our time coming to the Lord's table together. The Lord's table is is a gift from God to his gathered church that is a very tangible expression and celebration of community. So with that in mind, I want to read these verses from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 29. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that's like usually a nice, nice pause point to round out the communion setup, but there's more that in light of today's teaching, I think we need to unveil. So then, whoever drinks the bread, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. So what's Paul saying? Or when I grew up, I heard this verse and I was always really paranoid about taking communion. And I would try to think really hard about the right way to like honor the, the actual symbolic body of Christ so that I didn't, I didn't do it wrong. So I didn't screw it up. But the Apostle Paul isn't talking about our vertical relationship with God. He's talking about our horizontal connection with the body of Christ. And Paul, who cared deeply about community and reconciliation and unity, was saying, if there is a fissure anywhere in the body of Christ, meaning the people of Christ, the family of God, and you rush to the table without acknowledging that something is out of alignment, then you have missed the point. Paul is saying, if something is broken in our horizontal relationships with others, it threatens our vertical union with God. And many of us like to split those categories out. They say, I've got got conflict here, 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 and here, but me and God, we're good. Jesus says, are you sure? 
Jesus says, if you are coming to the altar to give your gift, or if you're coming to the altar to receive a gift, and you know that your brother or sister has something against you, what does he say that you do? He says, you leave. You leave that gift right there. You walk out of the building. You leave the house of worship. And you get things right. And then you come back. He goes, because to do anything other than that, would miss the beauty of this moment. So I'm gonna go ahead and ask the servers. I'm gonna ask the ushers to come down. And if you need a gluten-free option, there are stations where there are tables in the back here and up in the balcony where you can receive that. But as you sit here, I want you to ask this question. Lord, is there something that I need to do to honor the human body before I receive the symbolic spiritual body. And it could be that God is saying, yes, you need to go out in the lobby, you need to make a phone call, or you need to grab your coat, check your kids out of childcare, get in your car and drive across town to meet a family member where things are broken. Because I know that just by nature of the sheer volume of us that are in the room, and for those of us who are joining online, there are a handful of us who might need to hit pause on receiving the elements until we do what it is that God is calling us to do. So if you need to leave, I'm going to pray. And you walk out without hesitation because you, you are obeying the words of Jesus and you are trusting the heart of God. And you believe that on the other side of that, there's something good. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you that community is your idea. We, we here, we believe in a Trinitarian God. You, you are in community with, with yourself, as it were. And union is not optional for those of us who claim to honor you. So God, where there are breakdowns as a result of fear or pride or just poor communication, I pray that you would break our hearts and you would open our eyes and by the power of the Spirit, you would give us the courage to take the step that we need to take and give us the words that we need to say. And they could be, regardless of what happened, I'm still committed to you, or I'm sorry, or I need help. Whatever those are, Lord, give us grace to speak them. And for the rest of us, Lord, draw us to the table. And as we receive the body, and as we take the cup, remind us of your great, rich love for us. Remind us that you died not just to restore us to right relationship with the Father, but to right relationship with one another. So God, expand our view beyond our own hurts and insecurities to see how grand your vision for our lives and your church is. Prepare our hearts to receive the gift that is you. We pray these things. In Christ's precious name, amen. As you're being served the communion elements, you can take them whenever you feel ready. You can wait to the end or you can take them right away. You don't have to wait for a specific moment. This is whenever you're ready.